0: We are fascinated by things that are big and small. We are still trying to explore the atom. We know very, very little about the atom, something that is minute. But we also have just barely scratched the surface of exploring the immensity of our universe. We're fascinated by things that are both big and small. The central message of Christmas is that truly Jesus was born. God in human flesh came to us. But the overarching picture of Christmas is that God showed himself. He revealed himself to us. In chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 15, it says this, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And this is exactly what John said in his gospel to us. In verse 18, he said, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Today, there are three main points. Each has a very practical application because as we explore scripture, we should always ask the question, what difference does it make? And it always makes A big difference. So I submit to you this evening that we should allow Christmas to change, transform, and adjust us. Today we'll see how great truths about Christ touch us not only at Christmas, but of course 365 days a year. There are some important facts about Jesus in verse 19, for example. Paul writes, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And so Jesus Christ, just from the get-go, just from the most basic understanding is that Jesus Christ is deity. He is God. He's the second person of the Godhead, the Trinity. He is big, you could say. He is infinite. He has all of the characteristics of God the Father as well as the Spirit. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, the writer of Hebrews wrote. So There's no doubt in Scripture it teaches us, it exudes this great truth that Jesus Christ is God. So therefore, from our perspective, Jesus is big. Christ has always been and always will be the image of God. He is in all periods of time. His birth as a baby did not make him the image of God. But he did bring the image of God into our grasp, our understanding. As he was born as a little tiny baby. Jesus is big. Jesus is small also. Jesus Christ is the light, as John calls him frequently, And a light is very much needed because there is a desperate, broken, dying humanity on one side of this massive gulf between itself and a holy, righteous, pure God who desires relationship with this broken mass of humanity. But being a perfect and holy God, he just cannot have communion or relationship with a distant humanity, one that he loves and even created as well, because he did not would not compromise his his purity and his holiness. That's how righteous and good and holy and innocent God is. And so God had this dilemma, and so Jesus came and Jesus was the light. Jesus taught us. Jesus was the audiovisual, if you will, and also the means by which this broken humanity could bridge that gulf, that gulf between a righteous God and itself. A distant, broken, dying humanity. Humanity was in darkness, but Christ is the light. And so he communicates everything about the Godhead to us in this nice small package, this little boy that came uh, that we can understand, that we can actually hold and comprehend. And relate to as well man was apart and simply did not understand God mankind was in desperation in verse 13 of chapter 1 of Colossians Paul says that Christ rescued us from the dominion of darkness and that's what our world is how much evidence do you need to believe that our world is in darkness there's a lot of it there's a lot of wickedness and evil and disappointment and brokenness and hurt in our world We all have experienced this to various degrees, but Jesus came as a baby. And John writes in his first in his uh, gospel, he says, through him, all things were made without him. Nothing was made that has been made in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. So Jesus was both big and small. He came as a little baby. So that way we could understand, wrap our brains around who God is. He came not so much only that we could be saved and forgiven, but he came so that way we could understand God, so we could be saved, so that way we could know God. That's the build-out. That's the overall purpose of why Jesus came. We think, oh, it's just to save us from our sins. That's only a means to another end. It is so that way we could know him. We could be reconciled. We could be reconnected back to God. Why? Well, because God is a God who is relational. And the God of Scripture is very much that. He is a relational God. He is triune. Three persons, one nature. They have always existed. It's the only perfect relationship that's ever existed. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They've always gotten along really well. And they've always loved one another. So that is some pretty hardcore evidence to say that love then has always existed since God has always existed. But when mankind separated itself from God, mankind, and this is really important, this touches every person in this room and also at the 7 o'clock service, it touches every person in the world very deeply. When mankind separated himself from God, we forgot how to love. Talk about some practical information. We forgot what love was always about. Oh, we took love. We redefined it. And our, our culture does that as well. It redefines what love is. It's A more you know it's more really about me it's not so much about you it's about you fulfilling my needs and my wants and my desires and it's conditional because if you stop doing that i'm not going to like you anymore because i never really loved you if that's my definition of love so since mankind separated itself from god we forgot how to love because we forgot God, that's exactly why we struggle to love. What's a working definition of love? It's other centered benevolence. It's wanting something really good to happen to someone else, and you will not block that. In fact, you will hasten it, and you will love that person even though they don't necessarily love you. You still want good things to happen to them. And so that's what love is. So, to Quick applications. One, to know God again allows me to do what we were designed to do, to get out of ourselves and love and be authentically other-centered, other-centered benevolence. The most degrading force in the human experience is selfishness. The most liberating is love. A biblical definition of love, by the way. And the Bible is thick in that. Old Testament has said love, faithful, loyal, loving, kindness. New Testament agape love, the highest form of love, unconditional, other-centered benevolence, faithfulness. Secondly, the second most practical thing is that God is knowable and He wants to be known. How do I know God? How can I possibly communicate with this uh, ever-present, all-knowing? All-powerful being, how is this possible? Well, we see lots of examples of that in Scripture. We can actually talk to him. That is what the definition of prayer is. Simple, talking to God. It's either telling God something or asking God for something. And then he talks back to you through his word, through his written word. So he's a God who's relational. He wants to be in harmony with us. We're the ones that are the issue. He's not the issue. He provided a means by which we could be reconnected to him. We just have to accept that means. So the second most practical thing is that God is knowable. and He wants to be known. It's not just knowing facts about him, although that's really helpful, but it's also knowing him. And this really is, it breaks down to the central message of Christmas, that mankind can know and experience God. And that is done through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Because believe me, if God the Father knew a different way to reconcile mankind to himself, he would have done it rather than experienced the horrid death of his only son. So Jesus makes this exclusive claim that he is the only way to the Father. So Jesus showed who God is. is. Um, And so we have to allow ourselves to be changed, to be adjusted, to be transformed to what that truth is. Not make up truth for ourselves, but rather accept what the truth is and recondition, adjust, transform, change ourselves to that truth. Jesus also did something amazing with the cosmos, the natural as well as the supernatural realm as well. In verses 15 through 17, it says this, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things also hold together. So they're not only created by him, but that he also sustains them, he Holds it all together so it doesn't all fall apart. Paul uses an interesting term here. He calls Jesus the firstborn. And we think, oh, Jesus is, was the firstborn? No. A lot of people were born before Jesus. But this word in the Greek means something different. It doesn't mean firstborn literal in the sense of chronology. But rather it means in preeminence. He is the preeminent one of all the world. It's a reference to our Savior's uniqueness And superiority, it is not regarding his birth, but the idea of a firstborn son who would be accorded the rights and privileges not shared by other offspring. It's a very special position. It is superiority over all of creation. It is his preeminence. Jesus is preeminent over all the cosmos. It's a special position. Um, He is not created, we know from our study in Micah. Micah chapter 5 verse 2, that Jesus was called eternal. Micah says that you are from the days of eternity. He was before all things. In fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus communicated this to people who were pretty hostile to him. And he said, very well, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. And the reason why they were going to stone him, why the Pharisees wanted him gone, why they wanted him executed, was because basically he was saying that he was deity. Because he called himself the name that God gave to himself in the burning bush with Moses much time before. But whether it be at a burning bush or in a crowd of pharisees god calls himself the same thing he says i am in hebrew ani who in greek ego me i am this is what i will call myself no one makes up a name about god no one gives him a moniker he is the one who establishes who he is And so Jesus existed way before Abraham, and here he calls himself eternal. And so this means two things. First of all, it means that nothing else defines who God is but God himself. What he says and does is who he is. The second characteristic of calling himself I am is to show his place in all time and all events. He is not confined to time Whether it be past, present, or future, Jesus takes on all of these characteristics in this relatively short passage. He is the designer. He is the builder of everything. He is before all. He is eternal. He had no beginning and will certainly have no end. And he is also the one who sustains everything. This is who Jesus is. This is how Paul the Apostle describes him in Colossians chapter 1. But while as a baby Jesus was passive... In his God nature, he was always thoroughly active. Jesus, you see, also interfaces with creation. And so Jesus showed who God is, and then Jesus also interacts with creation in that to get things going, he creates it. And then he also sustains it as well, and he's been doing it forever and ever. Eternal on both sides of the timeline. So Jesus interfaces and interacts with creation. Christ is active. In fact, you could say that Christ is thoroughly interactive. Through our communication with him, we can actually change things if that is God's will. And so, for example, Moses was there with the nation of Israel who had just committed adultery against God through the creation of an idol a golden calf, and God wanted to just uh, thoroughly destroy, wipe out Israel, justifiably so. But Moses stood in the gap, and Moses repented for Israel. And so God changed his mind, and that's because he was operating with a different situation on the ground. And so God changed his mind. And so our prayer can sometimes change God's mind. He's an interactive God. Things are changeable. He does answer prayers. Secondly, life is more than what I see with my five senses. It's because he says here, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So God's word teaches in the Old and New Testament that there's more than just what we see, what we hear, what we smell, and what we touch, what we taste. It is a spiritual realm as well. Right now, I believe there are thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of angels in this place. And I believe that thoroughly because the Word of God tells us that angels do exist. And so life is a lot more than what I see with my five senses. There is a spiritual realm, and so we have a purpose and a plan and a design And a hope to life. It is not haphazard. It is not arbitrary. It's not luck. But it's also not totally predetermined. Your will does make a difference. Your desire to know God and experience him and follow him makes a huge difference. So Jesus interfaces with creation. He's active. Maybe not as a baby so much, but certainly in his deity. He's always been thoroughly active. Thirdly, you and I can enjoy creation, but not worship it. Uh, there's something much higher than us. Than us. There's uh, creation itself gives evidence for Him and who He is and what He's done and what He's capable of doing as well. So Jesus shows who God is, and Jesus creates and sustains the creation, but it also intimately involves us. Jesus, you see, is both big. And small, and we know, if we have a drop of humility, that we're pretty small too. But he cares about us. In fact, John tells us, and Paul also chimes in and says the same thing, that God loves the world. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But God demonstrated his love to us in this That while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loves the world. But we are not lovable. But he loves us anyway. And so he cares about the intricacies of life. He cares about us. He also intimately involves us who are his redeemed people. Those who choose to follow after him. In verses 18 through 20, Paul wrote this. He says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so he is our head. He is our leader. He is the firstborn of the dead. Why? Because he died for us. That was the sacrifice to show that God authentically and forgave uh, and completely forgave us. He is the fullness of God. He is the one who is the reconciler. He is the one who is the peacemaker. And so Jesus formed his people who trust on him. And it's called the ecclesia, the church. All those who desire to have faith in Jesus and have salvation and relationship with Jesus Christ. So we are part of something much bigger. We might be small, but we're part of something really big and something that's going to last forever and ever and ever. And this is why Jesus is also, in a very practical, everyday sort of way, he is the ultimate answer to all of our problems all of our challenges, all of our opportunities, all of our aspirations as a person. And we get forgiveness and we get righteousness from Jesus. But he is also the source of our value. He is the source of our meaning and purpose in life. He is the source of our deepest relationships in life. He's the source, my friends, of of our stability and also our peace. So the grace never stops. The gifts continue on. It's more than just being forgiven and getting saved, although that's the entry portal, you could say, to the receiving of all of his other gifts that he wants to give to us so badly so that way we could be made whole Thirdly, the purpose of life we learn when we know Jesus. The purpose of life is not to educate, propagate, accumulate, and deteriorate. The purpose of life is to be reconnected to the one who loves you. Jesus is both small and big. You and I are small but we have a big problem and that problem is our disconnect from God that's how we come into the world that's what scripture that's what the evidence shows and so our big problem is that calls for a big solution and that's why Jesus started it all by coming in the form of a of a man of a human so that way one day he could die on the cross to thoroughly and completely pay for our sins. You might say, oh, but it's so bloody. It's so repugnant. It's so awful to think about Jesus dying on the cross. Couldn't God have done it in a different way? No, because he is a holy and righteous God and he doesn't fake things. Someone hurt your feelings if someone... Transgressed against you you really only have one of two choices you can either try to get revenge against that person to even out the scales of justice i don't recommend that one but the only other option you have is to forgive and when you do that when you forgive what are you doing you are agreeing to taking take on the burden of what they did against you When Jesus died on the cross, that is exactly what God did. The Godhead agreed to take on the burden so that way that something happens to that sin. It is authentically paid for. It is processed. It is dealt with. In those three days while Jesus died, he paid for the sins of humanity. God's Word tells us that in order to receive that forgiveness... In order to receive the righteousness that we crave for, that justification, that vindication, we've got to place our trust in Jesus. For those of us who are raised in a religious environment, perhaps, it might mean, ah, i got to take my trust away from something else, some religious icon. The fact that my grandfather was a, a pastor, um, maybe baptism saving me, believing that, which is wrong. And transferring it to Jesus and his work on the cross. If you were raised in a non-religious background, it means that you take your trust for your eternal life. Because quite frankly, you never really thought about it all that much. And you take it and transfer from nothing else to Christ. And telling him that, I believe in you. I trust in you. I believe that your death on the cross thoroughly paid for my redemption, my salvation, my salvation. And thank you for forgiving me. And I could be reconnected back to God through the wonderful work of Jesus. This Christmas, allow it to change you, to transform you, to make adjustments in your life. And to see that Jesus in his deity was was and is big, but in his humanity was small enough for us to wrap our brains around and understand that this is a God who loves me and went through the trouble of coming from perfection, coming from the heavens to this broken and fallen place and loving me enough to die for me. This Christmas, trust in Jesus as your Savior and choose to walk with him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and thank you for Jesus and all that he has done for us and all that he continues to do. Father, I pray that we'll want to know you better and we'll also want to make you known. That's more than just a slogan, it's a lifestyle. So I pray, Father, that we will treat that seriously and desire to know you better in this Christmas season. I thank you for all who are watching, whether um here physically or through live stream. I even thank you for the angels who are here observing this as well. We pray that the angels in heaven will rejoice as people transition from being sinners to saints. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.